This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. It's 1975. We must take all the lawyers out of Congress. The movie? Nashville. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Last week we talked about the film Bringing Up Baby. This week we'll be talking about the Robert Altman classic Nashville. Before we get into that, let's uh, see what you had to say about Bringing Up Baby. You know, I thought the response to this was actually really interesting because you got into a talk while we were recording this about comedy. Like, is it harder for all of us to agree that this comedy is awesome? And in the case of Bringing a Baby, I think the answer is yes. It is a little hard for all of us to agree that Bringing a Baby deserves a place in the unspooled list. That's totally true. And Mark Evan Neff, uh, at question Mark Neff, actually brought up a really interesting point. He said that he noticed that people have more adverse reactions to comedies that they detest. Um, when perceived as bad, dramas are often dull, but comedies are seen as lame or grotesque. And it's true, like, that idea that we are much more forgiving in a drama. And I think it's hard to quantify if a drama is good. Oftentimes, it's just very passable. It's my argument with a lot of independent film or a lot of this mass marketed independent film. It's like, oh, another movie's out, but it doesn't, it's not saying anything. It's like, yeah, it's fine acting. It's it's fine. It, it's not offensive. Yeah, that's a point that Rance Collins also brought up as well. Rance Collins said, I think what's difficult about putting a modern comedy on the list, because we really do not have modern comedies on this list, is simply knowing what humor will date well. The technicals of a dramatic story remain relatively consistent, but the vogue of comedy seems to morph and taste seem to shift more frequently in the genre. That's so true. And Lucky Trick on Twitter actually brought up a really good point uh, and said that, you know, maybe we should be looking at Bringing Up Baby not as the best comedy, but 
for what it did to the genre of comedy. And I said, we, we did talk about that, but I, I also don't feel like this movie, you know, blows a Marx Brothers out of the water. And I'd rather have a Marx Brothers on this list and maybe something a little bit more current. Like, I don't think that the stamp of this movie is so pervasive. You know, it doesn't seem like so mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're going to be getting to Philadelphia story soon so that we can kind of right. talk about these two things together. But one point that a lot of people made in the forums is there are so many comedies from the 30s. Like, if we have a comedy on the list, it's probably from the 30s. And we don't have comedies from really the 80s, the 90s, the nows that we need to be sticking up for our comedy. And I think they just kind of felt that there was a tone that the 30s are overrepresented. And also, there was a tone that Katherine Hepburn's character is a psychopath. Uh, one of the people <laughs> who made this argument was Tiffany Thompson. She said, look, she destroyed David's life and she felt no remorse because she fell in love with him in less than 24 hours. Which is a trope that, yes, when I see it in movies and guys yes. do it, I'm like, what a loser, get away from him. No, but this is like a romantic comedy trope. Uh, it, it happens in a lot of comedy movies. Like, somebody's life is upended and that's what makes them realize that they are missing something, you know? But- you know, the one most important point that I think needs to be addressed, and Amy, it's to you. Can we get a picture of your cat? People want to see <laughs> this giant, giant cat that you described. It's kind of more like, can I stop posting pictures of my cat on Instagram? And to that, the answer is no. I cannot. I'm always <laughs> posting pictures of my cat on Instagram. And in fact, this is probably not a story I should tell. Okay. But. Why not? Um, It's just us. I have been. uh. Uh, so uncareful with what I post on my Instagram that I just realized that two of my pictures have made it on WikiFeet. I just Whoa. Like this week. Congratulations, Thank Amy. You. You've made it to WikiFeet. I'm so proud. And one of them, because I take pictures of my pedicure because I do a, a bad job. I'm, okay. really, I'm really bad at it. And one of them, I have my feet resting on my cat. And so my cat is technically on WikiFeet. Um, that's amazing. My, uh, I will tell you the best advice I got from my doctor recently was uh, when he saw how I cut my toenails. He's like, go get a pedicure. And <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, why am I depriving myself of this? Why am I bending over a toilet to do this? I'm going to get myself a pedicure. And I got to tell you, it feels pretty great. Are you on WikiFeet? No, that's not for me. That's not for the guy's feet, I don't think. I'm going to I think that's purely a creepo thing for the ladies. Uh, but uh, but look, I'd be honored and you would be grossed out if my feet popped up there. Um, Amy, this movie Nashville does something that... Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf does, which is overlapping dialogue. And we thought it would be really interesting to have everyone that listens to the show call in and we would create a scene kind of like one that you would see in Nashville. And this one would takes place uh, around uh, a bathroom. People are waiting to go in. Maybe people are coming out. And uh, our amazing producer, Josh, and our amazing engineer, Devin, Put this together. This is our version of a Robert Altman scene. No one knew what anyone else is saying, but now it's a collage. It's an audio collage, almost like our opening. So take a listen. A restroom provides accommodation for those in search of respite, revitalization. I don't really know much about Walker one way or another. Crowded line for the restroom the National like Convention some, Center. I guess I'm for I came to the dancing realization. Look around, you know. 
Where else there are you going to no see all these types of people there together? No There's one thing that not unites us all, and it's not religion, and it's not politics, and it's not even the music. It's that everyone in the whole world got to pee. It's the great equalizer. No one gets out of it, and no one does it better than anyone else. You and me and millionaires and singing stars and everyone in the slime all share something. Why does it really make you think, doesn't it? That's not fair. That's not American. We need to build twice as many men's rooms as women's rooms. See, I'm part of the problem. I love it. Can we call it Unspooledville? Ooh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely at least, uh, I mean, half the amount of characters that were in Nashville, and that was only a couple of seconds. Um, well, Amy, do you want to get into our feature presentation today? Do I ever. All right, let's get into it. The year is 1975, and the world population is under 4 billion. Minimum wage is 2.10 an hour, and President Ford survives two assassination attempts. Bill Gates founds Microsoft with Paul Allen, Kodak creates the first digital camera, Betamax video technology is released, and the laser printer is invented. Wheel of Fortune and Saturday Night Live premiere, the Kool-Aid Man appears in commercials, and for the first time, the first DC-Marvel collab comes out with The Marvelous Wizard of Oz. Uh, hot toys are Mood Rings, Pong, and Playmobil, and the big movies of the year are Jaws, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we've done on the show, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which we should do on the show, and today's film, Nashville. It comes out number 59 on the 2007 AFI list. It's the first time it's premiered on the list. Amy, who's in it and what's it about? Well, how much time do you have? Can I take the entire rest of this episode to list who's in it? I know. I was thinking about this question. It was going to be pretty daunting. Uh, I mean, we should just play the opening credit with uh, everybody being listed off one by one. Actually, yes. That's a great idea. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, but before we do, I will just say that it is directed by Robert Altman when he's having a little bit of a dip in his career. His career was up with MASH, went a little bit down. This is, for him, what he was feeling like was kind of a make-or-break film for his reputation. And it was written by Joan Tewksbury, who, spoiler alert, She's going to be our guest later on. Oh, very exciting. All right, here, who's in Nashville? 24 of your very favorite stars. David Arkin, Barbara Baxter, Ed Beatty in Nashville and the fabulous performances of Karen Black, Ronnie Blakely, Timothy Brown in Nashville, along with the spectacle talking before the episode started and neither of us are like Altman heads. Like, you know, like I appreciate Robert Altman. I've seen a handful of his work, but uh, not all of it. This is the first time I've seen Nashville. Yeah. He's a person, I guess I feel like I've been working backwards from. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the first Altman I saw was Shortcuts and then The Player and then Prairie Home Companion in Gosford Park. But the seventies work I had, I'm much more unfamiliar with it. And it feels like Nashville is a film that you have to be familiar with in order to love. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine what it must be like to sit down and watch Nashville for the first time, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing who any of these people are, not knowing what the fuck, basically. That's me. <laughs> I just did that. Um, and I will tell you, I think having recently seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 
really helped me like settle into Nashville because both of the movies, in my opinion, have this similar DNA where you're just kind of hanging out with people. The plot is not really, it's not a plot forward movie. It's a character forward movie. It's a hangout film uh, in, in, in a way, you know, you're just kind of in these people's lives. And I really enjoyed that about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I think it was such a great companion piece to jump into this. I mean, obviously so many more characters in this than that, but I just loved kind of exploring all these characters so much so that at the end of the film, I was trying to remember how we even met those characters or how they all kind of came in because they all kind of pop out. Like, you know, they really do, you're following one very strongly and then they go away and another one comes in and they're just weaving in or out. Yeah, I love your analogy. I think you're right. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has gotten better every single time I've watched it. I think Nashville gets better every single time that I watch it. And I and I can also get that it feels, maybe if you, if this is your first Altman, if you're kind of coming to Altman now, it can seem very alien because we, especially now, we're like in a time where most movies are so plot centered. You know, yeah. you go to an Avengers movie and it's like, what happened? Who lived? Who killed? What's going to happen in the next one? Plot, 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 plot. You know, we live in a world of plot. Like, did this character do a thing I approve of? Yes, no. Is the moral of the story good for me? Yes, no. It's all very, I don't know, like kind of a, a beaded bracelet that I find frustrating. And Nashville is a movie where he like takes that bracelet cuts the string, and he's like, humans are messy. This is a messy film. This is about behavior. This is about the way these balls roll. Well, I think the thing that is always so compelling about a film is character. I mean, right? Like, at the end of the day, you talk about character and not about plot. And maybe you talk about plot a little bit more in the Marvel world. But I remember there was this great piece on Red Letter Media. And Red Letter Media kind of takes the piss out of all these big blockbuster films and they did a like you know a giant series on the phantom menace and they asked people to describe like qui-gon jinn they're like who is qui-gon jinn like what you can't say he's a jedi and you can't say what he looks like describe him and people having a legitimately hard time describing this person who is a central character of this film because he is servicing plot. And in yeah, this... Yeah, it's like pop quiz, which Marvel character is the cocky, funny one who gets in over his head? Right, exactly. <laughs> and and here you are seeing all these characters and I feel so connected to these characters. At the end of this two hours and 43 minutes, you really get to see these characters in so many different lights. Um, most films don't even accomplish this for like two or three characters, yet alone 24. I think that's the thing I was really blown away by. Yeah, because this movie starts and you're like... What am I watching? Who is that? Because he's not going to hold your hand. He's not like, right. this is so-and-so. Here's her backstory. She just showed up for blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, it's like, you don't know who's important. You genuinely don't. You're like, am I watching them? Am I watching them? Who should I have my eyes on? He'll guide you. He'll zoom in over here. But you're you're taking in the information and then deciding how much of it to retain. I actually think that this movie and this style of editing and directing is perfect for now because it moves so quickly. We are jumping between characters every, you know, one or two minutes. You take your eye off the screen and then somebody else is here. So it forces you to lean in. And I think my impression of Robert Altman was it's slow. It's laborious. We're having these long scenes and you do have these beautiful monologues and these great quiet moments, but you're quickly into another beat. You're not sitting there it's it's just not my my expectation was very different than what actually was on the screen. 
Exactly. And I think what he's most famous for, of course, is the overlapping dialogue, which, you know, what, let's just even play a little bit of that to get into the headspace, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene I want to play is when um, Julie Christie walks into a bar as it's playing, talks to a table that is comprised of a competitive country western singer, a manager, the guy who considers himself a big wig of the town, Haven, played by Henry Gibson, and this kind of political mover and shaker type. This is just how the movie sounds. I was talking about the Christian minstrels just this morning, and now we have Julie Christie here. So good to see you. Oh, yeah? You won't sit down and stay for a while? Well, well, I hope your stay is very nice, and I hope you'll remember what film facilities we have here in Nashville. Oh, yeah, Thank sure. you. Good Thank to you, see you. Have a lovely Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Nice to see you. Well, isn't that an honor? What a surprise. Julie Christie. I've been there a lot of those movies. Julie, Julie Christie, she's a famous star. She's won the Academy Award. No, I'm not kidding. She got it for one of those pictures. I don't know which one it was. She's done so many. Isn't it, Jim? Oh, she's just got yeah. the worst right. sense of humor. No, she's lovely. She's oh, just a beautiful on, girl. She can't even comb her hair. And that is the sum total of Julie Christie's screen time. That's amazing. And I feel the same way about the Elliot Gould scene. Like, oh, all of a sudden, here's Elliot Gould. And he's just being Elliot Gould, 70s Gould, which I love. But it's so kind of unexpected. But... For a movie that literally starts off with a political campaign of a candidate that you never meet, it kind of seems par for the course. It's it's sort of like, yeah, look what you said earlier, like, just get rid of your expectations of what we're going to do. Although I do feel like I cheated in this film, which is I watched it with subtitles. Oh, I, I love watching things with subtitles and good sound. Yeah, I mean, it just was so much overlapping dialogue that sometimes when I was watching it at home, it just felt like... I wasn't even making out what was happening. Like I like it was like I'm I'm just listening to crowd talk and I'm picking up on moments and maybe that was part of it. You know that you are you don't need to follow everything. You're just kind of watching the characters. I did find it helpful to put on those subtitles. Yeah, I mean it's kind of one of the opening images of the film though. You have this candidate and then you have we cut to a recording studio where there's all these different instruments, all these different musicians siloed off from each other in these different little studios recording the same song at the same time, like all these yeah. actors making the same movie at the same time. And then Haven being like, "We need a little bit more Haven here." We need a little more Haven in this scene. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I thought this movie was about music, right? Or about the Nashville scene. It is to a certain extent, but I think it also is capturing this time in society, which is very much like now, which is always depressing when you see things that are the same. Like they talk about getting rid of the electoral college in this movie. I'm like, wow, we've been talking about this for 43 years. You know? um, Yeah, actually, I would vote for this candidate. I mean, do you want to hear a little bit of what he stands for? Yeah, absolutely. I I like him. Hal Philip Walker is, in a way, a mystery man. Out of nowhere, with a handful of students and scarcely any pros, he's managed to win three presidential primaries and is given a fighting chance to take a fourth, Tennessee. A win in that state would take on added significance for only once in the last 50 years has Tennessee failed to vote for the winning presidential candidate. No doubt many Americans, especially party liners, wish that Hal Philip Walker would go away. 
disappear like the natural frost and come again at some more convenient season. But wherever he may be going, it seems sure that Hal Philip Walker is not going away, for there is genuine appeal. And it must be related to the raw courage of this man, running for president, willing to battle vast oil companies, eliminate subsidies to farmers, tax churches, abolish the electoral college, change the national anthem, and remove lawyers from government, especially from Congress. Yeah, yeah, Hal, I like you. I'm on board. I mean, but it's not really about a political campaign. It's not really about country music. It is about people, and I think it's about fame. I mean, that's what I'm really getting from this film is people trying to stay relevant, people trying to become relevant. People being awkward around those who are famous. And even the obsession with fame and how that comes in in a few different ways. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, in a, in a very tragic way at the end, but then we're seeing it in a very sweet way, like when Scott Glenn's in Barbara Jean's room just to be close to her you know there's that's a little sweet it's a little creepy oh i mean the movie <laughs> it's is a little bit like here's the security guard of the hospital bragging about his gun and not paying attention to this man in a soldier's uniform walking into a girl's room with flowers no i i think that this is a great snapshot of how we deal with fame and and you could change the specifics but it's the same thing that goes on right now and and even the the jockeying for if you perform here we'll get you in a couple of years and we'll help your candidacy like there's a lot of stuff that i think watching it really hit home for me yeah and there's a lot of darkness to it too i mean shelly duval who she you know you want to love shelly duval whenever she shows up but her character's arc is basically Avoiding seeing her sick aunt as much as she can and breaking her uncle's heart because she just wants to make out with as many rock stars as possible. Oh, and she is so fantastic in this film. I mean, I... She comes in like a space alien. You're in this Nashville airport. Everybody's in suits and ties, all these dignified men, and she's wearing basically no clothes and gigantic boots. And she calls herself L.A. Joan, which I just, I love that. And her uncle... That is a storyline in this film that breaks my heart. I mean, when they tell him that his wife has passed away, oh, I'm I'm just crushed. And he plays that scene and the following scene so kind of masterfully. And I think that's the fun of this movie is you have very small performances like that. And then you have like Jeff Goldblum doing magic tricks and, and you're seeing Keith Carradine kind of being this sex symbol and everyone is doing something kind of completely different. I, I, I love it. Going back to your instruments uh, analogy. It is that everyone is playing something very unique. Yeah. I mean, I love that you gave such an early big shout out to, um, to Mr. Green, to the uncle, because he's just so beautiful. And there's that scene, right? When he learns his wife died, and the soldier just wants to tell him about how his mom really loves Barbara Jean. Mm. And you just see this guy kind of look forward, try not to be polite because he's been a real nice man this whole time. But his wife just died and he could care less, you know, and it's just so still and lovely. And it feels like, you know, we talked a lot about this in the Bring a Baby episode about a director letting a camera just go on his actors and pulling back a little bit, giving them room to do what they're going to do. And that feels like so much of Robert Altman's approach, like. You know what is happening to your character. I'm just going to hold back. I'm not going to cut. Just do what your character needs to do. We're not going to be shooting two shots. We're going to be shooting one shot. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like this movie was embracing second takes, right? 
I feel like a lot of the scenes that you're seeing are playing out naturally. There are some flubs, even in high tension moments, like on the day of the big uh, event, you know, people are stumbling over their lines, not in a, oh, they don't know their lines, but in a naturalistic way. And I think if you look at somebody like Judd Apatow or even that whole wave of comedy that we're a part of now, you know, the Paul Feig and uh, you, Seth Rogen, there's a lot of elements of this. It, it is improvising and it's naturalistic and it's uh, not going for jokes, but just playing within these moments. And I, I really, I, I think this influence is bigger than I even thought. It's true. Although I will say the one time I had to be an extra for like a story on a Judd Apatow movie, it was Anchorman 2, the SeaWorld scene. Uh-huh. And I just remember being there as they just tried line after line after line after line on Will Ferrell. They're like, okay, here's your punchline. Here's a different one. Here's a different one. But that's also McKay. Like Adam McKay directs with that kind of precision of we're going to shoot 15 lines and we'll use the best one. I mean, and, and you know, I come from a background which is improv and when I watched this movie, all I wanted to do was, A, make this movie, be in this movie. I, I'm just, I love it so much. The League, which is a show that I did for seven years, is kind of based in the same tenet. We improvised our scenes. We had a 10-page outline, and then we would go about the scenes any which way that we wanted, and we really led with our characters, and, and our showrunners really helped, you know, rein things in. But there's such a freedom to that, and you bring so much more to it. I feel like that's what you're seeing is, like, Performances are popping by how much people bring to it. I mean, Lily Tomlin, her character really, I think, could be argued to be one of the leads of the film, if not the most fleshed out character. And I have to imagine that's Lily Tomlin just being so magnetic. You, you can't In her take... first screen role. Wow, it's her first screen role. I did not realize that. Yeah, I mean, she was doing laughing, but this is her first movie role. She gets an Oscar for it. I mean, and you sense this element of trust, which is, is, I feel like, something that comes up all the time when we talk about different directorial styles. You know, you must wear this, walk this way, blah, 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 versus Altman, who gave people budgets. He was like, go pick out some clothes for your character. What would they wear? Wow. And they would pick out some stuff, and they would talk about it a little bit, but they were like, they had this trust of getting to build who this person was. He let Hal, the political candidate, he gave his team a budget for, like, buttons. And said, go make your stuff, go do your things, go make your ads, and then just follow us around, burst your way into this movie. And, and I love that idea of trust. You know, basically what he told everybody is they were able to hook, I think, seven microphones up to different actors maximum, mm-hmm. because I think they're recording on like eight channels. Yeah. So there were seven microphone packs on seven different people. And he would just say, when I say action, live your life. And if I see you, I see you. And if I don't see you, I don't see you. The movie is shot over five days, and they shot the movie consecutively. So these characters, as they're learning about themselves, are able to bring it to the next, like, logical day in the film, which is something that is kind of rare. You know, you don't often get to do that. Like, you shoot a lot of times out of sequence, so you have to remember where you are, and sometimes you make a discovery earlier, and you can't always put that into the film. And I love that he was able to do that. And he created these amazing group scenes and group scenes are the hardest to do, but it's so fulfilling just to see characters in the background. Like, oh, they're there too. Oh, they're there too. And you don't even realize why they're there. You stop asking that question. Like you just assume, oh, the tricycle man, Jeff Goldblum, he's there. He just showed up there. You know, oh, he's in the junkyard. Okay, great. We, you know, we, we, are just allowing ourselves to kind of go with it. I think logic goes out the window, even though we are following 
realistic characters. We don't have to understand all the machinations. Oh, how did they know to come here at this time and, and all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of, you know, going to college in Oklahoma where it's kind of a small town. And when the weekend started, you would probably run into pers- a person at this party, then maybe at the movie the next night, then maybe at the diner the next morning, maybe at the library. And you just were always bumping into each other. You couldn't escape. Well, what kind of obsessed me about this film was how do you cut this film down? I mean, how do you find this film? Because it feels like a film that already is expansive. It's almost three hours. What was lost, and I did some research on this, you know, the original cut was so long, they were going to release it as two parallel films, Nashville Red and Nashville Blue. And then they were going to feel so underappreciated. I know. And then they were going to do a 10 hour miniseries of Nashville based on the footage not used in the movie. So they have 10 hours of unused footage. I mean, that's not like Nashville. That's like Nash Megalopolis. I mean, that that is a series. That's a television series. Like that also speaks to Robert Altman as a filmmaker. I think we are talking about, oh, they're improvising. Oh, he's letting the camera find them. But no, he's fine-tuning this because the movie doesn't feel shaggy to me. It doesn't feel like without purpose. It's very purposefully directed and you, or the finished product is. And I think that that's maybe uh, a slight that you might have on Robert Altman. Like, oh, he just lets the camera roll, but he may let the camera roll, but where his work really is, is in that edit room. I I wonder so much about what that edit room was like. And I, I suppose that's why as the movie was going on, as he was shooting it, he made such a point of watching dailies every day with everybody from the crew, everybody from the cast to be like, here's what we have. Here are our stories. Here are our threads. Here's what you can pick up on. From what I've heard about Altman as a person, I don't think I'd want to be the person in the editing room saying, cut that out if he didn't agree. He seems like he... I mean, every story about him is that he was super stubborn. Even before he became a mega director with with MASH, he would do TV shows. He was like a TV director in the 50s and 60s. And I think he was always getting fired because he'd just be like, this is how I'm doing it. And they'd be like, no. He'd be like, well, I quit. You know, he's a guy that you can't really push around. Yeah. He's also a guy who says this film is the most pure version of his vision. He was brought this idea to do a film about Nashville and he was like, I don't want to do that. And then sent Joan Tewksbury, and we'll hear about this in a little bit, down to kind of explore to find a film that he did want to make. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk to Joan about it because, you know, Joan is this woman who, she was around Lily Tomlin's age, I believe. She was like a woman kind of from a slightly older generation going to Nashville. She had just separated from her husband and she's living this really interesting single life in the 70s in this town, which I think... I think you can kind of sense like a little bit the way she might have been treated by some of the men in some of the ways that these female characters get treated by the men. Absolutely. I mean, I think my favorite, and I was thinking about this the other day, I I love Barbara Jean. Barbara Jean is so wounded and complex and her husband is such an interesting character. And obviously she meets this tragic end, but just the way that you hear about her character, oh, she was burned. Oh, she suffered from heat stroke, you know, and when you finally see her performance, she is so with it and talented and then just kind of has this breakdown on stage. I'm obsessed with her world. And to think that that actress wasn't even the original actress they wanted. I think that Ronnie Blakely did such an amazing job, but she was just a last minute offer that, uh, you know, that Robert Altman pulled in when the original actress he wanted dropped out because she thought the money was too low. And she got nominated for an Oscar for this performance. 
Yeah, I mean, she's so special. I want to almost seize this moment to play two of her best clips, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, please. I just want to listen to her sing. Can we mm. listen to her sing for a minute? And this is actually Ronnie Blakely singing. Like a fatherless child, I think my mama and how she could sing harmony with my daddy. Our laughter would ring down the highways on the beaches just as far as memory reaches. I still hear daddy singing his old army songs. We laugh and count horses as we drove along. We were young. I mean, that is a voice. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. And she's just, I have vague memories of this because I had an old lunchbox that must have been from around this time period. Well, you had a Nashville lunchbox? No, I did not. I had like a Holly Hobby lunchbox. Oh, okay. Yes, she looks like Holly Hobby. Yeah, and I've always been like, you know, confused when I look at pictures from this time because I think of the 70s as like this hot pants kind of mm-hmm. era but there was also this huge prairie dress giant yeah. ruffles ultra feminine look to it that I forget also existed this demure look and she's just she's so fragile she's so breakable. so fragile I mean it's you know she's, looks like an angel most of the time I mean again not so far different than some of our pop stars of today you know having these go from Britney Spears to like Demi Lovato but what I also like, and just to just to put a little cap on it, is that all the actors in this film, they had to sing. There were, nobody is dubbed in this movie. And uh, they were required to write and perform their own songs. And they were recorded live to, you know, as opposed to being recorded in the studio, which gives it this kind of, I think it makes it harder. It, you know, you can't flub you can't take it again you have to really be a live performer and that's why the certain songs like keith carradine's song like i'm easy like you know that also wins an oscar and a golden globe for best song uh yeah and the song that we just heard i mean from what i've heard about that shooting day it was gonna rain all day Mm -hmm. it was really cloudy she's singing outdoors altman goes outside and yells stop at the rain and it stops raining just long enough for him to be like go sing and she's like i'm not warmed up and he's like go sing whoa and that's what comes out of her and it's beautiful. And can we play a little bit of her breakdown? Because yes. Barbara Jean just goes through so many stages. She's pretty much isolated in a hospital through most of the movie where you can tell she has a lot of these breakdowns because they're like decorating the hospital to her specifications because they know what she likes when she's in a hospital bed. I mean, she was recently burned. I mean, she's coming back to Nashville. Like that that specific, it made me think of Michael Jackson. And again, this movie is in 1976 and there's so many things that could be applicable to today, but it felt very Michael Jackson to me, like very frail, very quiet, you know, very Michael Jackson. You know, I want to tell you all a little secret, which you might not know, and that is that last night I thanked my lucky stars that I could be here at all today to sing for you, and I heard on the radio this cutest little boy was nine years old, and you know how sometimes a DJ will play a tune and ask everybody to phone in and say how they like it, you know? And uh, I was listening to it, and uh, they asked for callers to call in. This little nine-year-old boy called in, and the song had voices in the background, like the way they use these backup voices these days sometimes, you know, sounding like little munchkins. He called up, and the DJ said, And how old are you, son? And the boy said, I'm nine, and I think it's going to be a hit. And the DJ said, Why? And he said, Oh, we could have had those little chipmunks in it. <laughs> and I thought they were so cute because... Well, I can sing like a munchkin myself. I don't know about you, and I'm real fond of the Wizard of Oz. And plus, I live out, you know, just a ways out here on, off a uh, highway, Interstate 24, on the road to Chattanooga. So you can see why I kind of related to that. I, I don't know. I think me and the boys are gonna strike up another tune for you now. Let's go, boys. <laughs> but then, 
I think there's a storm. Seems like it's a brewing. That's what my granddaddy used to say all the time before he lost his hearing. Once he got deaf, he never talked much no more. I mean, this scene is epic, and it's you see it on the people in the audience's face. You see it on the band leader's face. They want they want it to work, and it's just this breakdown, which I did some research, and it apparently was based on Loretta Lynn. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I was doing a bunch of Googling, and it like Loretta Lynn's husband doesn't not look like Alan Garfield, no. who plays who plays BJ's husband here. And, you know, Loretta Lynn famously, like, they were like, are you going to go see this movie? And she was like, I would rather see Bambi, was her initial response. Wow. And then when she learned more about what the movie was, she was like, listen, I don't care if they have me kind of crazy because I am. I don't care if they have me going in and out of hospitals because I do. But when I hear that they're carting my dead body off and having an unknown take my place, that I do not like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the most damning statement of the film. I thought it was so interesting to see this person who is the biggest name in Nashville, or at least that's what we were led to believe. She gets shot and how so effortlessly everything just moves forward. And and it kind of felt to me like what we're living in, like, okay, tragedy happens. We're upset about it for a little bit and boom, we're out of it again. And, you know, and and how many times will it take before we really are affected by it? And and here, I mean, that that's distilled eerily uh, well in the scene at the end. I mean, I can't imagine what people thought in the in the seventies. You know, when they see this film, like yeah, I mean, sometimes when I get really bummed out about the state of the world right now, I think about what was it like to live through this period where you saw JFK assassinated, you saw RFK assassinated, you saw Martin Luther King assassinated. Then you had the whole Nixon presidency, you know, Nixon stepping down while this movie is going up, while they're shooting this movie, you know, and the madness of that. And this movie at the time puts it in the context of that. You know, you have Haven Hamilton right after the shooting yelling this. Y'all take it easy now. This isn't Dallas, it's Nashville. Oh man, she's This is Nashville. You show them what we're made of. They can't do this to us here in Nashville. Okay, everybody, sing. Come on, somebody, sing. Like putting this urgency up there for the entire crowd to be better, to do better, to be something else. And then you do have this moment where then Albuquerque, this woman who's been desperate to make it the whole movie, yeah. never gets a chance to sing. I mean, that, there's a moment with her where she's like about to sing with her torn stockings at a racetrack. And all you hear is the cars and you watch her do these ridiculous moves, which made me think of how much I wanted to see Sharon Tate talk in Once Upon oh, a Time in yeah. Hollywood. And then said, just get this loud radio in this car and him pulling, you know, I think kind of purposely an Altman move right there. And finally, Albuquerque gets her big moment and she sings this song. all that tension in this because you're panning along and in one way it looks like church you have all yeah. these choral singers singing and clapping wearing their robes and then you look at the audience and some of them are clapping and some of them are like are we just going to pretend that this didn't happen there's this confusion there's this tension nobody's sure what the right way to be is. and then the answer is yes they by the end everyone's on board and that's the craziest 
moment to me at the end because it you see the transition just slowly happen and and you know for all intents and purposes Haven Hamilton is like the mayor of this town you know he is he is the icon that everyone's looking at and he looks he, like Elvis from the neck down and he looks like an ice cream sundae from the neck <laughs> up with that toupee by the way uh, I mean this is Henry Gibson who I really am familiar with from laughing, yeah. you know, and, and when you look at his credits, they're insane, but I never really saw him play a character like this. I, I was kind of surprised. I, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's evil, but in that moment there, you know, he's more concerned about Nashville than he is about her being shot. And that's a telling moment too. You know, he, he's still putting on the show. So do you, you know? think this movie, do you think the ending is saying it's okay if we lost one star, we can always make another? I think in a way, yes. I think that people are chasing fame, not the person who's famous, if that makes sense. So anyone can be uh, famous, but they want to be around that person. So in that moment when the person who's never gotten a chance to sing and we don't know where her talent is, you could see her in, in 12 years now being a huge star because of this moment. Boom, now she's famous. And, you know, minutes before this, she was a nobody that no one really cared about or ever wanted to put up there. But fame does a weird thing of making you important. And the minute that person is dead, well, I mean, do yeah. you agree? Or I mean, I think so. I, I was also thinking as you were talking how interesting it is that it makes her famous and not the shooter. You right. Know? Which I'm glad that we're having this conversation now. We finally have to be about not making the shooter famous. Yeah. But the the shooter, I don't even know what happens to the shooter, to be honest. Doesn't even seem like he's arrested. We don't follow him at all. I couldn't help but think of him as a young Stephen King, though, every time I looked at him. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of him actually as a Norman Bates, because when mm -hmm. it comes to the shooter, we have this conversation with him and his mom while Shelley Duvall is trying to interrupt. Mom? Kimmy, Kimmy, what's wrong with you, Kimmy? I'm in Nashville. Well, How are so you? Well, There's no I'm reason to right. worry. Well, I have been. I've been able to sleep. I had to take some of that NyQuil so I could go to sleep. That cough syrup, you know, put you right out. Where did it help? Yeah, it, it did. But where, where are you staying in Nashville, Kenny? I'm staying in a rooming house. It's in a, nice. In a rooming house? Who are you talking to? What? To my mother. Who are you talking to, Kenny? A girl that lives in the rooming house. A girl that lives in the rooming house. Kenny, who, who owns that rooming house? Her uncle. Oh, a man owns the rooming house? Well, it can't be very clean. Don't be silly. Well, I bet the sheets aren't very clean. And you know, this is a terrible time in, in the South. You can pick up this parasite. Put, Joan, put that down, please. Kenny, listen to me. <laughs> Just a minute. I mean, it's in the key of Norman Bates. Yeah. No, I mean, he definitely is, you know, beholden to his mother. And uh, yeah, I didn't think of him, though, as a character that was going to be a shooter. And I think that's another great thing that this film does. If anything, I think you think, oh, maybe it's Scott Glenn. I didn't even know there was going to be a shooter. I didn't, I, I, it was a total surprise to me. You know, it, he felt weird, but he also felt like someone who was desperate to kind of make it like he has his, his, uh, his instrument case with his own picture on the, on the back of it. Um, but he didn't seem again, like what you hear on every news you know, station like, oh, he just was a normal person. He was just a regular guy. Like he was innocuous and clearly the most dangerous guy. We should be paying attention to him. And I actually want to rewatch it to watch him again to see those clues. Yeah. I mean, there's these little beats in there. Like when he hangs up on his mom, he hangs up on her. But then after he hangs up on her, he says, I love you, mama, into the phone, acting normal for Shelley Duvall's benefit. You know, mm. like, but I also think it's so funny. I mean, 
this carrying around of a violin case. I mean, that's just the big cliche one-on-one of I'm a gangster. But he takes out this tiny little pistol. So is it just like rattling around in there the whole time? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I also love that he kept the key on his chest, like, you know, like a hope ring. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. You know, this film was kind of reviled by Nashville because they thought it was like a mean-spirited franchise. But then I think they finally came around to it because they're like, oh, these songs are actually really good. And I don't think it's damning about Nashville, but I think it takes the sheen off of what country music is. I think country music seems more pure, right? And it's not like rock and roll. And it's it's not about the business. It's about their love and this. And, and I think it's a kind of brilliant film in the fact that it kind of pulls the covers up and goes, no, 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 this is also a business. They also are making money. They know exactly what's going on here, whether it's, you know, advertising for, what is it, like Goobies? Uh, not Goobies, I know, but it's like... <laughs> yeah, Goo-goo. yeah, they Goo-goo's. make a real point of when they go to the Grand Old Opry, the Grand Old Opry, mm-hmm. the thing we keep hearing about, the landmark of Nashville. All you hear at the beginning is just goo-goo clusters, goo-goo clusters, goo-goo clusters. It's I actually all about advertising, it so yeah. It's so funny. Go get a Goo Goo Friends and settle back for 30 of the goodest minutes in radio. The Goo Goo Grand Ole Opry. It's sent your way by the makers of Goo Goo, the goodest candy bar in the world. I mean, it's a, it's again a harbinger for this idea that everything becomes corporatized. Everything is, you know, it's sponsored. It's, it, it, the purity of Nashville is definitely you know, sucked out of this film. and Which is how I think Nashville itself was feeling, because wasn't there this famous murder that happened there before this movie got made a few years, a guy named Stringbean Aikman. Uh-huh. He was murdered with his wife in 1973, and I think there was this sense of whatever Nashville had been, it was starting to go downhill. I mean, I feel like you almost see that in the fact that there's these three rockers who kind of enter, you know, Bill, Mary, and Tom, that they're the rock and rollish guys in this country town, and... They're making a place. They're getting chairs, too, and they don't totally fit in. Ooh. But it's interesting. Have you seen this movie that came out called The Wild Rose? Or Wild Rose. It came out this year. No. It was a little indie, and I think we might hear a bit more about it in the award season because the lead actress in it, Jessie Buckley, she's amazing. And she plays this Scottish singer who sings at the Scottish like Grand Old Opry. There's a, there actually really is a Grand Old Opry in Scotland. And it's about her trying to come to Nashville, trying to do anything she can to get the money to come to Nashville to get to sing here. And it hits a lot of these same beats. I feel like if people love Nashville, they're going to love that movie too. Yeah. But to what you were saying, I mean, when this movie comes out in Nashville, they do a big Nashville premiere. Robert Altman does not come. I think he's maybe a little nervous mm. about going to yeah. the Nashville premiere. That's interesting. And the radio announcers are sort of like, I think I liked it, but if someone explained it to me, I probably wouldn't like it when it came out. Interesting. And Minnie Pearl, you know, famous yeah. Minnie Pearl, she goes to the premiere and her reaction was, you know, I'm afraid that a lot of people who love our music will be offended by the film because the music was terrible. 
And she says, I know they did a bad job with the Opry. There was a plastic look about the fans that turned me off. They took a bunch of regular Opry fans who were scared about being in a movie, and they had them do the scene over and over, and it showed in their faces, and that they left out this important part of Nashville, the fellowship and love that exists between the country singers and their fans. And I will say to that point, I think she's true, because when you when you look at the people in the audience, the extras in the audience at the Grand Ole Opry, they are not reacting. They clap real loud, like they're right. very enthusiastic, but then when somebody's performing... They look like they'd rather be anywhere else. That's interesting, though, because they recorded it live. And I think people are watching these songs, but they're not songs that the people know because they're written by the actors. So I think there is a part of that community that you get when you go and see Paul McCartney. You're like, play Beatles. Oh, yeah, Beatles. And it's like, here's a new one. Oh, what am I watching? All right, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to it. You can't be a fan. You know, you can be excited about it. But again, you know, maybe it's just uh, background actors not doing the best job of being a background actor. Like, they're not responding as if these are the biggest people that they should see. Yeah, I mean, it is weird, though, because the first person who comes out to sing is Tommy Brown, you know, mm-hmm. who's, like, the known basically as the most famous black country singer in this whole movie. Right. And I thought that first it, the, the, bad ex, the bad extras were making a statement. Because everybody right. was treating him with such reverence. He seemed really loved in the, in the communities that we'd seen. But then this crowd wasn't clapping. Right. And I thought it was on purpose. But then Haven comes out and they're not clapping for him either. So I thought, oh, okay, okay, okay. It's just a general thing. It's just a general thing. You know, it's a film that I also feel like I would love to have seen a sequel to. Because to see where these characters are later. And I found out that there were plans for a sequel set 12 years later called Nashville 12. And most of the original players agreed to appear. 12 like they cut the 24 people in half? (laughs) I think it was like 12 years later. Ah. Um, 12 years later and we've killed half. (laughs) And Lily Tomlin now is running for political office. And Barnett is managing Connie White and is obsessed with a Barbara Jean impersonator, which I think is a really, again, dark thing. I mean, this movie doesn't make any bones about dark storylines. I mean... Uh, Lily Tomlin with David Carradine, when she has to go home to her husband and kids, that he just makes a phone call to call this, you know, this woman that he's having another fling with in New York right in front of her. And and the way that Lily Tomlin kind of steals herself and still kisses him before she leaves, it's, I mean, this movie is not afraid to go to some pretty emotionally dark spots. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie is almost so dark. I get I get depressed watching well, it. It's really dark. It's dark without being melodramatic though. Don't don't you feel that way? Like I feel like you don't see a scene of Lily Tomlin in her car crying after that. You just see I think the way most people actually deal with dark moments and going back to Haven at the end you know, it's not like, oh my God, someone's been shot. Someone's been shot. He's like, nope, we, the show must go on, which I think is problematic. But it, there's so many points where this movie could become melodramatic. And it really, I think, does a more realistic point of view of how we all deal with trauma and drama and, you know, sadness in our own lives. It just, we're just moving forward. We're just moving forward. We have to. Because if we exist in it like we would in a traditional film, we couldn't live the next day. Yeah, I mean, I think that sequence of Lily Tomlin and Keith Carradine is, to me, one of my favorite one-two punches because we've had this whole buildup. He's been calling her at her house. She's been either pretending like she doesn't want him to call anymore when her husband's on the phone or just being genuinely confused, which yeah. she is. I mean, Did you know it was Tom? 
I didn't really kind of get who it was at first because you're like, Tom, 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 yeah. Tom. But you do keep seeing him leave whoever he's with and pick up the phone and call her. Okay, yeah. I I guess I didn't put it together fully or maybe I wasn't paying attention to it. That's where the movie, I think, has this ability to kind of be a little bit more loose. Yeah, exactly. But the, it's fascinating that he's calling her. He's got all these sort of hippie chicks who want to be sleeping with mm-hmm. him. And he does sleep with all of them. And he keeps calling this woman who's really not from this generation. She's not a hippie. She's a mom. She has two kids. And you sense in her that it almost might mean a little more, of course, to give up a bit of her life, you know, to give up this safety she has with her husband for this, but to get excited about the fact that she could have a little bit of more life than this because her husband is obviously horrible. Well, I mean, he's... Gross and the worst, and he's hitting on poor, poor, poor Suleen. Well, I mean, I think that their relationship is not a good relationship. I I also feel like she's neglecting her husband. She's paying so much attention to her children. And who knows what came first, but it doesn't seem like that's a happy relationship. Well, yeah, he doesn't even seem like he's interested in learning sign language to talk to the kids. So she's trying to hear about their day and he's trying to interrupt as she has to give the kids all her visual attention because they're signing to her what happened. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. And you can tell her, like, blah. By the way, Ned Beatty, when he is hitting on Celine. It's such a desperate moment. And I, I love the Celine character when she does do that strip tease and she, you know, you feel this moment like, oh God, she's got to do this. Um, the next scene that we see her in, you know, her friend is like, hey, just FYI, you're a terrible singer. And and I, I'm, I'm being honest with you, you're terrible and you're terrible. She's like, oh, get out of here. Get out of here. And there's something like, amazing about that like in her lowest of low moments someone's like being honest with her and she's like nope and her confidence is kind of uh, like just you know just goes up jettisons up and it's a twist like you could see that being melodramatic but it it, she seems like she has enough self-confidence in herself and she's okay with that decision that she's made you know even though there is a misogynistic tendency to it and it's really uh, a terrible position that she was put in but she you know nope She's going to go on with her day and she's going to be at the Parthenon the next day. But anyway, we were talking about Lily Tomlin and her terrible relationship. I know, but now I feel like we need to keep talking about Sulu just a little bit. I mean, can we play a little bit of her singing and the men just being the worst? Oh, yeah. I mean, but but let's also disagree that she is also the worst as a singer. She is the worst as a singer. But yeah, she's here. She's been invited to sing at this fundraiser. All-male fundraiser. All-male fundraiser. She thinks it's because they actually think she can sing. Mm-hmm. She's trying to sing a song that's a Barbara Jean song that Barbara Jean will sing later and get respect for. But when she sings it, everything goes bad because the men are like, doesn't she know she's here to strip? And the truth is she doesn't. She, no. I mean, she's not even wearing matching underwear in the scene, which is how you know. Here's a See, these are good background extras. These people know what they're doing. Uh, and then and then their turn just a second later when she does strip, they're literally giving her a standing ovation, which is again uh gut-wrenching. It's about like she wants to be famous for one thing, and they're giving her a standing ovation for something that she didn't want to do. It's like, oh, like what what you know, price, do you get the fame that you want or the adulation that you want? It's so complicated. I love it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I heard is that the people, those extras who are having to boo, they didn't really want to 
do it either because they're like, we are good, upstanding Nashville right. men. And for us to be in this movie cheering and humiliating this woman, they were not happy about Oof. it either. So they are actually acting. But the look in her face as she goes through this, the kind of dead eye look she gets and just how she walks around, she takes her clothes off in basically the most perfunctory fashion oh tripping on them a little bit and she throws her underwear off and it's it's a fuck you here's my underwear kind yeah of throw and then she just stomps off yeah she it's rock and roll it, it really is it's a it's an amazing striptease scene because it's strong vulnerable and sad uh all at the same time but yeah back to the lily tomlin thing i mean one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when tom the blonde rock star is playing that song i'm easy which is such an emotionally manipulative, devastating song about how he's this vulnerable guy who's always getting his heart broken and women, oh, they they just don't know how to deal with his love. Like, it's such a vulnerable song. And he, and he dedicates it to the most vague person ever. He's like, to someone special who just might be here tonight. And Altman is just going from female face to female face, all these women who think he's singing to them. Yeah. And they're all a little bit either smiling, flirting. Oh, I'm so flattered. Oh, does everybody know it's about me? Oh, I wonder. But you look at Lily... And she's just numb almost. She's just taking it in like this is the most exciting, terrifying thing. Terrifying thing, too, that could have ever happened to her. And her dignity in the scene where she realizes he's just going to call another woman. And also he's going to be mean to that woman the second she can't hear him anymore, the second she leaves. Yeah. I mean, it's masterful. Like, I think I wanted to pull so many Lily clips. And then I realized my favorite Lily performance in this movie is when she's dead silent. And that's right here. Don't lead me on if there's nowhere for you to take me If loving you would have to be a sometime thing I can't put bars on my insides My love is something I can't hide It still hurts when I recall the times I've tried But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Take my hand and pull me down. I won't put up any fight. That said, though, I think my favorite performance in this movie is Geraldine Chaplin. Hands down. Oh, yeah. I mean, Opal is a great character. She is essentially our audience conduit, right? I mean, she's our BBC reporter who's going through this world. I think in many respects, she probably gets the most amount of screen time because she interacts with the most characters, I would imagine. Yeah, and she's such a monster. Mm. I mean, the stuff that comes out of her mouth, I find it absolutely unbelievable. Oh, yeah. She the is patronizing a- way she talks about the Maoris having their own sort of religion, I think. The way she talks about America in, in her clip of, like, talking about the car. Oh, God. I mean, we should probably—I well, know we're playing so many clips, but there's just so much to talk about. I'm wandering in a graveyard. The dead here have no crosses— nor tombstones, nor wreaths to sing of their past glory, but lie in rotting, decaying, rusty heaps, their innards ripped out by greedy, vulturous hands, their vast, vacant skeletons sadly sighing to the sky. The rust and their bodies is the color of dried blood Dried blood. I, I, what I love about her character, though, is she's a reporter that I'm so kind of familiar with now because she is not about chasing a story. She's almost chasing her own experiences, like whoever's more famous in the room she's going to. You know, she doesn't really, I don't feel like integrity from her. She's just 
kind of in it for herself. Well, the way I heard that Geraldine played this, though, is she played it as though she's a big faker. Because mm-hmm. there's this little moment where Opal is, like, introducing herself. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm from the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. That's not their name. Oh, wow. They are the British Broadcasting Corporation. And that's one of Geraldine's little Easter eggs of she thinks this woman is a big faker. I love that. I mean, she seems to have no real access. She's just running around with a tape recorder. Doesn't have a cameraman. No. And she's talking about her cameraman, but she doesn't have one. I love that. And she claims to have been everywhere, done everything. This is like when I was in Israel. This was like when I was over here. I mean, it's hilarious. I think this, I love that she here is Charlie Chaplin's daughter. You know, him being the world's most famous silent comedian, her giving this all verbal performance that is hysterical. Mm-hmm. Like she's so funny in this. The movie. way that she just maneuvers that tape recorder and the microphone, it she always seems like she's, you know, just weighed down and trying to wade through people with, you know, I just love her physicality. Yeah, and she's so cold. I mean, there's that moment where she's sitting at the table with the rock stars and then also the chauffeur, you mm-hmm. know. And she just says, like, he's trying to talk to her, like, you know, I can take you around. I can show you things. And she just says, I don't gossip with servants. Yeah. It's so cold. And I've heard that actually the guy who plays the chauffeur, David Arkin, that was so much of how he was treated during this shoot is people kept accidentally maybe on purpose calling him Alan Arkin because nobody really cared to learn his name. Wow. He just felt so insulted throughout the making of this film that he shows up to work actually one day wearing this shirt that I think is kind of amazing and I kind of want one. He had a shirt made in that 70s style with the big letters that just said, my name is David Arkin. It is not Alan Arkin. I have no relationship to Alan Arkin. And everybody just thought his sad little shirt was so funny that they all made their own shirts making fun of it. Like, I am Keith Carradine. I also do not know Alan Arkin. I have no relationship (laughs) with Alan Arkin. (laughs) Well, Amy, we have a very special guest today. Uh, she is a uh, a brilliant screenwriter, a novelist, and a director. And she is really the inspiration for the film Nashville, as well as being the screenwriter of it. Um, welcome, Joan Tewksbury. So, Joan, my first question for you is, I mean, so many of the characters in this movie, so many of the themes that this movie is wrestling with, They came from you going to Nashville on a few research trips. I'd love to learn more about those. Um, The first one was uh, very carefully uh, curated by the people in Nashville who took me to the museums and the Bible printing um, uh, place and the Grand Old Opry. But it was all very sort of formal and very polite. And I went, we were shooting Thieves Like Us in Mississippi, and I went back and said to Bob, I have, I have to go back on my own because um, it's just polite was not what we were ready to do. Yeah. So I did go back. And um, basically the way the film is laid out is exactly what happened on that trip. I arrived, the airport was strange, and there was a huge automobile accident And I went, like Opal from the BBC, into recording studios with a large yellow legal pad and just simply took notes until someone asked who I was and told me to leave. Um, (laughs) I became friendly with the engineers at um, at the studio where they were recording Christian music, and 
they were the ones that told me about the exit in and that that would be the perfect place to go. And so along with just, I kept driving around the city just to see what was strange looking, something that would be interesting for our purposes in terms of locations. But the exit in sort of gelled what the story would be, which was this story of serendipitous meetings, comings and goings, because the city is in a circle. If I see you in the morning, I'm going to see you at least one more time. At least that's the way it was then. Oh, wow. Uh, because it was small. Uh, Nashville is no longer small. Did you ever write like this before, like approach writing, like just going into an environment and letting it kind of inform, you know, the characters and, and the ideas that you... Yeah, p- pretty much. Because I re- to me, um, location is a character. And so... Often I find that I, I mean, I've, I've just, I've been working on several things, but a piece in Italy where I had to go first, see what was up with everybody in the neighborhood, and then shape the story out of the reality that's what, the, that is what is there. And so that's the way it was with Nashville. And also you get to talk to people and you get to learn more stuff. Um, and, at the time, it was a small enough place that people told you secrets. <laughs> and um, it, <clears throat> it was also in flux because, because it was the first time they had been dealing with the outside world in a big way, um, with big drugs. And, uh, you know, yes, they were all used to uppers and downers. But this was a, you know, they'd had the first robbery um, because String Bean carried all of his money in in the bib of his overalls. So he had been attacked and and his money stolen. I mean, it was a very peculiar moment in time in Nashville. And so it was absolutely ripe for us to to come in and do what we did because we kept adding things to it. Uh, mainly because the the uh, politics at the time, too, was coming in. Right, because as you're shooting the movie, the whole Nixon impeachment is proceeding. Yes. And I'm yes. also so curious, you know, I love this image of you being in Nashville on your own, listening, eavesdropping, writing, researching, and then writing a character like Opal. And also the idea of you, from what I understand, you were a child performer, so you knew this world of like people with ambition, people trying... To, to yes. make something of themselves. And I imagine that just gave you not just insight, but empathy into these characters. Very much so. And I grew up in, in, Calif- in Southern California in the 40s. And so everybody wanted to be in the movies. Everybody's mother wanted you to be Shirley Temple or Mickey Rooney. Um, and so it was a similar not the same, but a similar kind of thrust in terms of ambition. It's what you're saying. It was everybody had a song they wanted you to hear. Everybody had something to sell. Did you know that what you were doing was different or important? I I know it's hard to understand like culturally how something is important, but here you were doing something so structurally different than other films. Was it ever a conception to you like, oh, wow, we were kind of breaking the mold of 
a traditional film. No, I just approached it because it was also, um, I come out of the world of dance and choreography. And, and so it's also a big soap opera if you break it down. Right. But it's, it really is um, like choreographing set pieces that I knew Bob would, if, if, if the actors could come in the way that it had been set up and leave the way it had been set up, there was room in the center of each one of those dances, as it were, for the actors to either add or subtract or for Bob to add or subtract subject matter in that construct. So as I was writing it, I figured this was a perfect kind of construct for Bob. I did not think about whether we were breaking rules or any of the rest of it. I kept going back to MASH because MASH traveled you through you know, it was a limited, uh, you were on an, uh, on a, in an army camp or a military base, rather. But it's still, um, you traveled all the way around that thing, which is, ex- I just treated Nashville the same way. So to answer your question, no, I had no idea that it was new, old, or any of the rest of it. I mean, there's this famous anecdote, I don't know if it's true, but right before shooting started that... Bob had everybody come over for a barbecue on the 4th of July, and then he said, tear up your scripts. We won't be using them anymore. Oh, yeah. He, that was his favorite thing to do. <laughs> and um, the, um, the first script was 176 pages because Bob had never been to Nashville. So there was a lot of, dis- uh, there was a lot of description, and there was a lot of uh, three-column dialogue which let you know how many characters would be in a scene and how they would be overlapping. So what happened when he said that, most of the actors had sort of memorized, you know, what the script was about, but it gave what I would do. I would meet with actors about three days before they were going to shoot a scene, and the scenes were still in uh, the same uh, construction that they had been in before, we just took out all of the um, description, but I would meet with actors and then we would see about pushing things in. Barbara Baxley is the perfect example of that with her Kennedy speech, the Bobby Kennedy speech in the nightclub. And then on set, Bob would, you know, ask or push things through the, the big, um, as advertised, it was wholly um, supposed to be uh, improvised, and that's not quite true. It was, um, yes, there's always improv- improvisation when you're shooting a film, but it was, again, there was a construction to it. But it just it just left room for people. But, yes, that was absolutely correct, he said, Okay, you can throw away the script. And I said, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I mean, about that room, I think maybe my favorite performance in the movie is Geraldine Chaplin. And some of the stuff she has her character say, I mean, it just it takes the joke so far. What, what yeah. was everybody on set? Was no, it like, I we're could, going for it? 
I could not have written. Geraldine grew up with a trained bear, okay? (laughs) I could not, I have no frame of reference. I wanted, we just turned her loose. And we had been at the Cannes Film Festival um, for Thieves Like Us when she was there with her then partner, uh, Carlos Sara. And we watched how she was attacked from every corner um, with press. And so basically what we said to Geraldine was, okay, now you get to be them. So you can be as rude or however you want to do this. But then also there were opportunities visually, like all the yellow buses. And busing was a big, it was a big deal then. So we turned her loose in the buses. And then also in that huge, um, uh, she calls it the elephant graveyard, but it's all the wrecked cars. But yeah. it gave us an opportunity to put other characters so that we know that the motorcycle man probably spent the night in one of those buses and that, you know, Kenny was looking for parts for his car. Um, and quiet, and it was a quieter way to join some of these pieces of the story together. But believe me, Gerald, no one could have written the buses, the buses, the way, <laughs> the way Gerald, I mean, it was just nuts. What was this set like? The stories I hear are that Robert wanted everybody to watch the daily so that they would see what everybody was up to, but also maybe be a little bit competitive, that people were drinking, that it was fun, that it was, you know, the mid-70s. Well, Bob, he always, uh, on every set, at the end of the day, his way of sort of bringing everybody together was just to invite them to dailies. And there was food and there was wine and um, joints and all the rest. Yes, as you're saying, it was the 70s. But it was his way also of watching behavior. And it was also a way for actors to see where they were going, where other people were going, And it was not so much competitive as upping the ante for themselves. It was not to outdo somebody else, but to get a little braver. Mm. And it's, that is not a, it's not a terrible thing when you have a cast that big. The only person that came in late, did her, you know, did her songs and left was Karen Black. She was the only one that was given a really good hotel room, a really pretty dress, and uh, Bob didn't want her talking to any of the rest oh, of the wow. cast members. And it was truly set up so that she would be the star of this, you know, of this whole event. And um, that was pretty good, actually. And all the other actors were staying in apartments that were really sort of cheesy. Was there any like last minute additions? Like it feels like that scene where, you know, Elliot Gould comes in. Was that something that was in the script or is that something so, that was? Oh, no, they were not. And Elliot was visiting Nashville. Julie was visiting Nashville. And so uh, Bob, you know, and they called Bob and he says, you want to be in a movie. <laughs> and so it just was joining people in the scene, uh, joining those actors in the scenes that were already established. And again, leaving room, there was always room for these kinds of additions or subtractions 
um, within the construct of it. And it just, it made it crazy is what it did because you went, Julie Christie? Yeah. Nashville? Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? And Karen's great line. She's not a movie star. She can't. That little girl can't even comb her hair. I mean, that came straight out of Karen's mouth. Again, you cannot, um, you cannot foretell what's going to happen between human beings on camera. What did you take from the experience of working with Bob as a director? Because, you know, you, you, know, you had directed some things before uh, you, as you were writing with him. But, I mean... Uh, but what did you take into directing? Did you learn anything from that style? Well, basically, I had only directed theater. And so, and I had been involved with choreographers like Jerome Robbins, who choreographed every eyeball twitch. And so when I saw uh, MASH, it, was, it to me was so liberating because it gave the actors freedom. And so I think what happened was in, in being able to be on set with Bob for those, let's see, three films, um, it just, it let me know that you could do this and nobody died and it wasn't a terrible thing to have a looser construct and um, it just made me braver. So that as I started to direct uh, in film, I could incorporate and have conversation with actors and fold in behavior. It's all about behavior mm. and casting. I mean, casting is, the, is one of the most important things, you know, as you work in film, you cast for behavior. And as the, the scene with Gwen Wells in the, in the strip, that particular scene is like the metaphor for the whole movie, that everybody thinks they're not going to have to lose their soul, but right. at some point, yeah, you do. And when, when we, you know, she had a particular look and a particular kind of sort of sexy innocence, and we told her, you're going to have to strip, buck, you know, buck naked, and that was just fine with Gwen. And um, the day that we did that scene, and she can't sing, okay? Right. She cannot, t okay. She was trying to take uh, singing lessons, and we wouldn't let her. <laughs> and the first, all morning, we spent doing the music part of that scene. And all the men came up to me at lunch and said, you are going to dub that girl's voice in. I mean, it doesn't somebody like Marty Nixon come in? And we said, no, we're not. And they just said, oh, oh, they thought we were crazy. I mean, it's such a brave scene. And uh, you, you yeah. pushed actually for her character to be the one to die, that you thought that she should commit suicide. Yeah, exactly. And then um, Bob, as, as the further that we got toward making this movie, and we're talking about this today with what just happened last week with all of these killings. Every time there is one of these things, I just think, my God, you know, it started out with one or two, and now we're down. I mean, uh, I won't go there. But the, um, the addition of um, Bob said no, no woman has been killed, and I 
really disagreed with him about this. And it took some doing. Uh, but I finally uh, could justify it enough to write the scene. And um, as it turned out, it worked very well because of Ronnie. And she was one of those characters that you could um, you could see this happening to. And Barbara Streisand came to see an early cut of the film, and she was furious. You know, really? she said, "You, yeah." She said, "You have put on screen what I fear every time I walk on stage." Yeah. So it's um, a double-edged sword to do those kinds of do those kinds of. Uh, yeah. I, I was reading actually that, you know, being on set shooting this in Nashville, that you guys would sometimes bump up against the gun culture there, that an extra was murdered and that Henry Gibson had a gun pulled on him by a man in a urinal. Yep. And when we were doing, uh, at the time, I we were doing Thieves Like Us in Mississippi, and I had really long hair. We were all trying to be Cher. And... Um, <laughs> I was to look for a location in, a, in this little tiny town of, for a beauty parlor. So I walked up one side of the street and down the other side of the street and finally found the beauty parlor, and I walked in. And by then, everybody had come out of their stores to see what the hell I was doing in Levi's, a tight T-shirt, and long hair. And the woman in the beauty shop said, you better... You better uh, uh, tie up your hair, girl, or somebody's going to cut it off for you. And um, there, we, uh, there were a couple of instances where um, part of our crew, uh, people would, it was the days of Easy Rider, and they were on motorcycles, so they were uh, threatened, too. It was a funny time. I mean, is there is there a setting in America you think right now, this year, would be ripe for a movie like this? I don't know. I, as I, as I travel around the United States, and I do a lot, um, they're all, it's, it's like everybody is, there's the same Walmart or the same yeah. CVS. There is, there is such a, an overall sort of, uh, we've taken, We've taken the texture out of uh, out of a lot of these places, and it's really sad. So I really I can't answer your question. I don't, you certainly couldn't shoot Nashville the same way now there no. in Nashville. Well, it's been it's been so fascinating talking to you and and hearing about this film a little bit more. And and is there anything that we can uh, that you're working on now that or anything that we can. Uh, kind of find you i doubt you're on social media but uh is there anything no i am not (laughs) i avoid it you don't have a snapchat account (laughs) no i do not and um i'm i'm working on a novel i have you know a screenplay that i would love to uh try to get made um i have been graced with the re-release of old boyfriends which is very nice because it seems that people enjoy it now a lot more than they did when we released it. <laughs> but um, I'm doing a lot of work for the Sundance Institute, um, which is great because I get to hear stories and I get to hear what what's coming through filmmakers at this moment in time and to encourage them to be brave. And um, it's pretty good, you know. 
I'm old now, you know. So um, 83 is not the beginning of her career. But I'm delighted to have this much going on at this moment in time. Well, I I love it. It's uh, fascinating to talk to you. And um, I cannot wait to check out Old Boyfriends uh, as okay, well. Okay, too. Yeah. Yes, good. Well, Joan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Old Boyfriends, by the way, the movie that Joan mentioned, it's kind of special that she mentioned it. Um, this is a film that she made in 1979. It stars Talia Shire from Rocky. There's also Keith Carradine is back, John Belushi, John Houseman, Buck Henry. It's an awesome, awesome cast. PJ Souls from Halloween, written by Paul Schrader. It's and this, his brother. And his, and his brother. It's this movie that got kind of lost. And then lovely people that we know at the UCLA archives, KJ Relth, I want to give her a shout out, yeah. helped get this film actually resurrected on 35 millimeter and it's now streaming on canopy so if you want to watch old boyfriends i think you definitely should go find it hey everybody it's rob Lowe here if you haven't heard i have a podcast that's called literally with rob Lowe, and basically it's conversations i've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that i admire like aaron sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I know that we've just kind of touched the surface on a lot of characters, but each one of these characters really is a movie into themselves. Um, It's so surprising to me, though, that this film did not get on the list sooner. In 1998, it was eligible for the list, but didn't get on until 2007. That was really, it kind of blew me away because now after seeing it, I'm like, how does this film not get on? Not only because it's uh, breaking traditional form of film, but it also is a kind of representative and so ahead of its time. This is one of those films that just feels like an absolute no-brainer. This has to be on the list. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like The Player is a much easier watch. Mm -hmm. And in my first thinking about this, I was like, we should just put The Player on. You know, the player is so much more fun. It's a more accessible movie that also gets a lot of these ideas across. And then rewatching Nashville again, it's really now starting to click for me more how much I can love this movie. You really have to be in the right mindset because yeah. it is not a plot forward film. Like you have to sit back and just enjoy. It's a hangout film. Yeah. And yet, like Altman was really worried that the studio would screw with it and then they wouldn't let him have the movie that he wanted to have. Part of the gossip I've heard is, you know how this movie starts with a weird black and white image of the Paramount logo and it's a little scratchy? That Altman did that on purpose. He took the Paramount logo, the reel of it, and he stepped on it and threw it on the floor because he was mad at them. And so he was like, run the worst one. I want this to look awful. And he also had Pauline Kael, who was a big champion of his, come to the set and showed her a rough cut of the movie really early, like really early. And she wrote this review that went into the New Yorker three and a half months before the movie came out saying that this is the greatest movie she ever saw wow. three and a half months because it was her way, his way of getting her on board with protecting the movie. Got so it. that if she put in the New Yorker that this was a masterpiece, it would save his ass basically. Wait, and so it, she just was on set or she was in the edit? She visited the set and then she saw a really early okay. edit of it. And so All she wrote this hours. gigantic, really huge piece that just celebrating it. You know, she referred to him basically as saying that he was like Fred Astaire, that he was from this great American art of making the impossible look easy. And built all this hype up. So all the critics were like, okay, we need to see this movie exactly the way that it should be. And then there was kind of a backlash. 
afterwards with people being like, well, why did she get this access? What's happening? Yeah. Why are we being ordered to have this group think? So it, it, it's almost a, a moment of a critic. As a critic myself, I don't know what the ethical thing to do is there. Like, do you go out big and protect this movie or do you have too close of a bond to this movie to even write about it? Well, I mean, I think you have to answer that personally. Like, if she really was moved by it, I would think it would be hard to write something as passionate about it. You know, it's an interesting dilemma because, you know, critics at the end of the day, you are one, you are a person, you are, you have an opinion. Like, and as long as you're writing the truth, then all's fair. And just because you like someone doesn't mean that you can write an effusive, you know, a story about it. You have to, you have to have passion for it. I mean, you can try to fake the funk, but I think sometimes it, you know, especially Pauline Kael, she does not pull any punches. I don't feel like she would have done that if she didn't believe in this film on some level. It's true. But the backlash was to the limit where Rex Reed went on Merv Griffin mm -hmm. and he said, Pauline Kael is always foaming at the mouth about something. And then he called Nashville a snob picture. And he said his problem with Nashville is that the critics have built this great big monolith out of a dung hole. And he says, I'm, wow. and this is him talking, so I'm going to say it as always talking because it's him talking extemporaneously. Yeah. He says, I mean, this man is really not very talented when you come down to it. He makes movies that are very pretentious. They're self-indulgent. They're too long. They need to be edited. They have no point of view. It's all just private movie making time. And the public really lets him know it because his pictures are almost always total flops. Wow. I thought it was just awful and that I thought Nashville was the most underrated. He says underrated, but he's meaning overrated. Yeah. Picture of the last five or six years. I think it's easy to say that the country is in danger, the country is mindless, the people are brainless, that everything stinks and that everything is negative. I mean, it's like, let's get the grassroots people. Let's make fun of the lower classes. Let's make fun of the country and Western music. See, I don't think he's making fun of anything. I think he's just showing people for what they are. And I think we are all with flaws and, but we don't want to see that side of us. And I think that that style of filmmaking, I mean, we're in the seventies. We've talked about a lot of films in the seventies. This doesn't feel to me like a seventies film, even though it's dead center in the middle of the seventies, it it's gritty without feeling like we're gritty. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think there's a, a subtle distinction. Um, but I feel like it's a very honest film and it's interesting though, because I feel like, you know, this is a film that gets, the most nominations in the Golden Globes ever, right? It's 11 nominations um, and also four nominations for best actor in that. So I guess, you know, maybe that's how it kind of ratchets it up. But at the Academy Awards, it's a lot simpler. It's best picture, it's best song, best director, and two nominations for best supporting actress. And it only won best original song, which is, you know, it, it like I, I wonder if this is a film that grows in popularity as as time gets away from it. Or was it? Yeah, I mean, it did fine. It did fine. It didn't really set the world on fire, but it mm -hmm. did fine. And so it is kind of a surprising one on this list in a way because it does say this wasn't a big hit. It wasn't even a huge Oscar winner. It wasn't completely critically loved, although it was critically loved. It's sort of above average across the board, but not exceptional in the way that most things tend to be, either by being big hits, big winners. It does feel kind of like we want an Altman on the list and we're picking this one, which I can be at peace with, but I can also yeah. be open for other films. Although I do think he is making fun of Nashville a little bit. I mean, come on. Like, you cast all these comedians, all these people from Laughing. Yeah. You have them write their own songs. I mean, I think the character But the songs most, are not goofy. They're kind of goofy. I mean, okay. I think Haven. I think Haven is a joke. Henry Gibson, he said that we might do a couple sound montages here, that he based, he based his songs on Cal Worthington ads which also existed all the way back sure. then. 
If you don't know what those sound like, if you're not from California, they sound like this. Cal Worthington and his dog Spot. Give your axle as a sagging dosy cow. Maybe need a station wagon, go see cow. If your wife has started nagging, then your tailpipe is a dragon. Go see cow, go see cow, go see cow. Hey, if you're out buying a car, you ought to drop by Worthington Ford. Come on by this big old friendly giant supermarket. You've never seen so many cars in your life as we have here at Worthington And also, this is a guy who is always writing his own poems on Laughing. They sounded like this. Now for an interesting change of pace. Elements by Henry Gibson. I used to like fresh air when it was there. And water, I enjoyed it till we destroyed it. Each day the land's diminished. I think I'm finished. And so he combines it into this ridiculous figure. My favorite song is the one that he sings about how he can't keep having an affair with this woman right. because of his three kids. Yeah, yeah. And he's it's such a but sanctimonious it sounds true. Song. I know. It's such a sanctimonious song, though. He's like, I'm the good guy in here. I'm going to stop having sex with this woman right. that I shouldn't be having an affair with. It reminded me of, well, it reminded me of my me and my grandma, my mama, my mama Sita, who lived in El Paso most of her, the end of her life. She had this thing that I also had with the singer Marty Robbins. Uh-huh. You know? Oh, I know Marty Robbins, yeah. I love Marty Robbins. And loving Marty Robbins feels a lot like loving Haven because his songs are also kind of trash when you think about them. Right. They're terrible. My favorite one is is exactly like this. It's called Devil Woman. Do you know this song? No. Okay, we're going to play a tiny bit of it. But basically to set it up, it's about a guy who's saying, I can't have an affair with you anymore because my wife needs you needs me. And because I was sleeping with you, you're the, now the devil. It's so hypocritical, but that's who Haven is. But but this is what I think about that. It's like, it's also commenting on the culture. Like he did it with the player too. And I think he does it with Prairie Home Companion. Anything that he is looking at, Gosford Park is another example of upending our traditional point of view. And and look, Prairie Home Companion is not a uh, a seething indictment of, you know, public radio, but it shows people for who they are. I think Gosford Park does a great job of kind of upending like traditional, you know, that kind of uh, a kind of film. I, I think that that's his point of view is cynical. So you couldn't put him, you could put him anywhere and you're going to get a cynical picture. I don't think that that's wrong because I also feel like these characters ring out true. They're not goofy. They're not wearing these big old cowboy hats. And and Haven, the way he is dressed, feels appropriate for his character. And not everybody is like that. And he's showing so many sides. I don't know. I I think he is taking the piss out of Nashville. Absolutely. But I think, like he did with the player, took it out of Hollywood. It's, it, you know, The Graduate too. Buck Henry pitching The Graduate too. Like, I don't know. I just think that that's that's his stamp as a filmmaker. Where Hollywood made The Graduate too. <laughs> well, yeah, but not Buck Henry, yeah. at least. You know, I mean, I mean the, you know, you know who would agree with you is Charlie Chaplin because really? Charlie Chaplin was alive when this movie came out. Yeah, and he sent Geraldine a telegram because he was super sick of Hollywood, living in London, hating America, honestly, yeah. at this point. And he loved this film because he thought it went so hard on America, and he loved it. And he said um, he wouldn't have had the courage to make this movie. Wow. I love it. Now, my question to you is, Amy, is there a Simpsons? No, we're like wow. on a real bad streak of Simpsons, yeah. man. Well, these are interesting films because I think they're hard to narrow down. Like, what would what would be the Simpsons Nashville? I mean, Simpsons Nashville is the, the Simpsons, Simpsons town. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah we're, we're around. It. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I found was a Family Guy. Okay, great. So we'll take it. This is from um, an episode called "Death Is a Bitch," 
where Death wants Peter to help kill a bunch of people on an airplane. Both of the pilots were killed, but fortunately for the other passengers, actress Karen Black, star of such films as Nashville and Five Easy Pieces, was on board. Our hats are off to Miss Black for proving once again that given the opportunity, actresses over 50 can land large aircraft. <laughs> Karen Black, what an obscure reference. Wow. That's a really, I mean, that that is kind of bottom of the barrel of Nashville reference, but I appreciate that it's you found true, it. It's true. Um, I almost wanted to torture you by playing a clip of this movie called Moment by Moment, which is basically if Lily Tomlin's character made another movie where it's about right. her as a housewife. Do it, do it. All right, but the young man in question she beds is John, John Travolta. Travolta. Do you remember me? Lily Tomlin. I'm sure I don't. Lily Tomlin. John Travolta. So long. Two special people. Did you remember me? Yes, I remember you. Oh, I thought so. Good. In a very special film, Moment by Moment, rated R, starts Friday, December 22nd at a theater near you. Oh, Amy, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see it at all. (laughs) Um, I think we both agree this should be on the list. Or you're open to it being on the list, but you're not 100% sure. I want to stick up for anti-plotlessness. Okay. I like it. I I firmly believe it should be on the list. I'm glad it's on the list. Um, I have not seen enough Altman to say it's the definitively the best Altman to be on the list. But it was such. A, I was surprised. I think I really just surprised myself by how much I really enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, I take a lot of notes for these films. I didn't take any notes. I just enjoyed it. I let it really wash over me, and I feel very connected to it. I, I which is also a rare thing. I just felt myself kind of just in it. In it to win it, man. In it to win it. In it to win it. All right. Um, Vote for Sheer. He doesn't want the national anthem to be that song either. I mean, that was the only thing I felt was a weird part of his campaign. <laughs> Why are we slagging on the national anthem? All right, Amy, next week our film is The Maltese Falcon. So The Maltese Falcon, if you haven't seen it, everybody wants this Maltese Falcon. So my question is to you, what would you trade for the Maltese Falcon? What would you give up for the Maltese Falcon? I want to know this. Let me know. We are, as always, at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And we will see you next week for the Maltese Falcon. 